You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we surveyed the Bible one book at a time. We are in the book of John, a lengthy book, and uh, we are taking it one chapter at a time, evidently. We thought, we thought maybe that we could do this without doing it one chapter at a time, but it's just not working out. So uh, we're, we're in chapter 7, and chapter 7 is all about the Feast of Booths. And that's going to be the theme of the, today's podcast. We'll tell you about what that feast is in the second part of the episode. Okay. Uh, but for now, I just want to outline it this way. Uh, the first part of it, first 13 verses, are about the time before the Feast of Booths. The second part of the chapter, ch- verses 14 through 36 about the middle of the Feast of Booths, and the chapter ends with verses on the last day of the Feast of Booths. So we're going to talk about before the Feast of Booths, in the middle of the Feast of Booths, and the last day of the Feast of Booths. Yeah. Uh, or Tabernacles, as it's mm-hmm. called. And which is the older way of saying it? Booths or Tabernacles? You're from a younger generation than me, so how do you crazy kids call... Uh, the the Feast of Booths. I've always heard Feast of Booths, so I'm gonna <clears> guess Tabernacles so, yeah. might be. Tabernacles has got to be the old, old King school. James, yeah. yeah. And I have Booths in the ESV. That's the translation I read from. So uh, that's probably the most modern reference to it. Can I ask you how many days this was? I read it, but I've forgotten. <clears throat> seven. Seven. It was seven day feast. Okay. And so uh, we're covering as, a span of seven days in this chapter. Yep. Okay. And. Uh, there, there are particular events that come on the last day, but I, I want to save that discussion for the second part of the episode, but I, I think that's interesting to point out. Well, let's get started with some stuff that happened before the Feast of Booths, and the, and the main thing is a revelation that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Now, I don't believe that includes his entire family. It's obvious that Joseph the carpenter is now gone. Uh, He's deceased. Um, His mother, I believe, was a believer his whole life. Uh, Luke tells us about when he was a child, she treasured these things, the miraculous events of his birth in her heart, and all the things accompanying that. So Mary was obviously somebody who stored that up in her heart. Mm-hmm. But for some reason or another, it did not pass on to his brothers. Nothing is said about his sisters. We know he had at least two sisters because mm-hmm. uh, I think it's Matthew who speaks of the sisters in the plural. But this yeah. revelation comes at the beginning of John chapter 7, which says, After this, after the feeding of the 5,000 and the teaching that accompanied it, and after, remember, last episode, a number of disciples departed, deserted him. After that, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We'll see why, you know, a little later. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. So you look at that, you look at verse 3 and you think, Oh, these guys do believe in Jesus. And they're wanting him to go down and work miracles because they think he's so great. But the next few verses will reveal that those words are dripping with sarcasm. Mm. They're not really believers. Uh, Verse 4, 
For no one, this is still the brother speaking, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, and notice the word if, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John tells us this in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So that, you know, the first time I read that, I'm sure, I can't remember the first time I read it. I've read it so many times. But I'm sure it just dropped really heavily on me, this realization that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. And how can that be? Surely they've heard the stories and they've seen so many things. But they didn't. Now, here is his response in verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. We assume it's safer for him in Galilee. And so he puts them off, and they go on down to the feast. Now, there were three major feasts of the Jews, and you were required to go down to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. Mm-hmm. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And so, uh, this I mean, I say you were required. Um, Jesus was not sinning and choosing not to go, but I think every Jewish male went to at least one of these annually. And it was customary, you know, if they could get off and do it, they, they would all go down if they could. Yeah. Uh, so he stays in Galilee. But then look at this, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast... Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Because in verse 8 he says, I'm not going. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 10 it's revealed that he did go. And so some wonder, is this a moral problem for Jesus? I don't believe that it is, but we'll talk about that. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. For Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So things have really changed. We talked about that shift in, in chapter 5, mm-hmm. where John starts concentrating on the opposition. And this is obvious here in chapter 7. So those are the events leading up to the Feast of Booths. Now let's start in verse 14 and do some reading about the middle of the Feast of Booths, what was going on in the middle of that event. And, uh, you know, he basically talks about three things related to the Father, the first being his authority from the Father. Uh, Verse 14, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning... When he has never studied, and they're talking about he hasn't studied at the feet of a rabbi. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that kind of learning. He, of course, had learning, but there, literally, this is in the Greek, he doesn't have letters, meaning he doesn't yeah. have the, the, the teachings of the law from the rabbinical tradition. Yet it seems that he has learning. So Jesus explains in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now listen to this. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
Now that doesn't prove he wasn't lying in verse 8, but it shows that he respects truth and uh, it's a pretty good indication that you're not interpreting this correctly if you think that Jesus is trying to deceive his brothers yeah. in verse 8. There's got to be something more to it than that. Yeah. So I, I need, you know, we'll move on for now, but we'll come back to that, that uh, little problem. And um, so he says that his authority comes from the Father. Now they respond, you have a demon, <laughs> verse 20. And, you, you know, that's an ad hominem argument. And usually mm-hmm. when people don't know how to respond to something that somebody says, they just attack you. So mm-hmm. that's what they're doing here with Jesus. You have a demon. And he points out their hypocrisy. And this is where you see why they were seeking to kill him in verses 21 and following. He says, uh, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Now, he's talking in Judea. We've read about a lot of miracles in Galilee, but what was the sign that John recorded that was done in Judea? Do you remember? This test question for Andrew. He healed somebody. Okay, that's, you just got that from this, right? Healed somebody on the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, the pool. The pool of Bethesda. Exactly. Yeah. So he's referring back to the pool of Bethesda, and I think that's pretty important because of the argument that he makes here in verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision... And then in parentheses, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. What was it, the eighth day? So, you know, if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, well, they had to to circumcise a child on the eighth day. So this was done a lot. Now, the Jews believed, this gets a little delicate here, but the Jews believed that the human body had 248 members. So Jesus is saying... You'll work on one member of the body, yeah. you know, on the Sabbath. And then he says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? And then he has this proverb that we'll come to in the practical section. Do mm-hmm. not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. So he talks about his authority from the Father. Next, he turns to his origin from the Father in verses 25 through 31, which is basically his saying, I come from heaven, I come from the Father. I'm not going to read those verses for the sake of time, but I'm going to skip down to verse 32, where he goes to his departure to the Father. In other words, his death. And I'll just read verse 33. He says to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. So he's he's starting to predict his death, uh, but he's doing it in, you know, kind of cryptic tones. They're not exactly sure what he means by that. But he says, I came from the Father. The Father gave me my authority. I came from the Father, and I'm going back to the Father. Those three things are in that section that we're calling in the middle of the Feast of Booths. The last part of the chapter, verses 37 through 53, is the last day of the Feast of Booths. And... um you know, he, he goes back to this water imagery, which we've seen before with the discussion of the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, she's drawing water from the well, and he's saying, uh, if you ask, I will give you living water, and you will live forever. So he's emphasizing water in terms of eternal life there in John chapter 4. He does something a little different in verse 37, and this is because of the Feast of Booths and a tradition that occurred on the last day of the Feast of Booths. 
Look at this. On the last day of the feast, the great day. So that shows you that there were certain traditions that came in on certain days of the Feast of Booths. And the seventh day was the, the big day. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that's another thing that we got to come back and talk about, you know, in the mm-hmm. middle section of the of the podcast. Oh, yeah. um, but he's definitely using water in different ways here than he did with the Samaritan woman. And with the Samaritan woman, the water had something to do with eternal life, and here he's connecting it to the Holy Spirit. And John says he hasn't done that. The Spirit had not been given to believers yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Is there some connection between the water and the last day of the feast? Yes. Do something with water on the last day? Yeah. Do we want to save that for the next section? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just, just, just to keep our... Yeah. That works. Our flow I was just going. curious. Yeah, but and I didn't. No pun intended on flow, but yeah. Oh, nice. let's, let's go with the flow it, here, the water. Andrew. Okay. All right. We need our laugh track. <laughs> yes. No, don't. Up. <laughs> we've we've tried that before. You yeah. Remember how that worked out? out. Yeah, it didn't work. Okay, let's finish the chapter out. Verse forty. When they heard these words, some of the people said. This is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? I think that's really interesting because he was born in Bethlehem. Yeah. But they looked at him as a citizen of Galilee. And so they thought they had found uh, a way to discredit him when in actuality, because of this circumstance of Joseph being from Bethlehem and Caesar making everybody go back to their hometown, he happened to, be, to have been born in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. So um, they have this discussion. There's division among the people about who he was. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45 says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And they said, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisee said, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So they're just, you know, against everybody but themselves. Now, Nicodemus speaks up. And we remember Nicodemus from chapter 3. He came to Jesus by night secretly for fear of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, a very influential Jewish man. And he speaks up and he says... Does our law judge a man? Now notice the theme of judgment. We've had that in verse 24 where Jesus said, yep. Judge by righteous appearances. This is all tied together with Nicodemus. Does our law judge a man uh, without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Uh, no, the law doesn't, but the Pharisees do. Mm-hmm. They do all the time. And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And we'll stop there. It's not the last verse of the chapter, mm-hmm. but it's the last verse about the Feast of Booths. So that's the end of our reading there with John chapter 7, verse 52.
We're back for the second section of our podcast, and uh, we're going to think deeply about some of these matters, and there's some things to chew on here. So let's get started, first of all, with this um, supposed discrepancy between verses 10 and 8, and and I'll remind you of what that is. When he was talking with his brothers, he told them, and they were talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, of course. But he's talking with his brothers, and in verse 8 he goes, You go up to the feast, my time has not yet fully come. So it looks like he's saying, you know, you go, I'm going to stay. I got some mm-hmm. things to do. You know, I'm just, you know, it's not time for me to go. Yeah. Or, you know, it's obviously dangerous for him to go down to Judea right now because he healed this man on the Sabbath, which is a very controversial thing. Um, even at the beginning of the chapter, it says that the Jews were seeking to kill him. So mm-hmm. the brothers were kind of saying, hey, why don't you go down and get killed? <laughs> uh, you know, let's let's go on down. If you're a real miracle worker, then go down there and work your miracles. Mm-hmm. And they And they had this supposition in their hearts that he wouldn't dare do it because it would be dangerous to his life. They, mm-hmm. th- By the way, these brothers do a complete turnaround yeah. after the resurrection. And, you know, two of them contributed... Acts 1, right? Do what? You say something about that in Acts mm-hmm. chapter 1. Uh, well, yeah, they're with him in Acts 1. Yeah, yeah. 14. Acts 1, 14. Really. Yeah, and of course they contributed two volumes to the inspired mm-hmm. New Testament, James and Jude. Yeah. So uh, that's... You know, something we might talk about in the podcast a little bit later. But for now, in verse 8, it appears that he's telling them that he's not going to the feast. But then in verse 10, he goes. Not not publicly, but in private. Which means he didn't go with the caravan, but he just kind of went on his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they always traveled in groups, which is much safer, of course, on the roads than, than traveling alone. So he went by himself down there and... Um, you know, people say, well, was Jesus lying in verse 8? Knowing that he would go, was he lying? And I think that's obviously not true. I mean, if yeah. he was lying, what was his motivation for lying? Exactly. To say face with his brothers? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem in character with, with Jesus, of course. To yeah, I agree. Lie just so his brothers wouldn't make fun of him. Besides, they were making fun of him, kind of saying, you're too cowardly to go down. And he goes to the feast, and he he's crying. On the last day, when the, the great day, he's standing up, and he's crying out. So he's obviously not mm-hmm. afraid of the, the Pharisees and the chief priests. And not to mention, in verse 18, as we pointed out, he says, the guy, the man who comes from heaven is true and in him there is no falsehood. So he would be, you know, extra careful about being truthful. So I don't Mm -hmm. think that that can be it. And others say, well, he changed his mind. And I think that's out of character with him also. Many people believe that Luke chapter 9 verse 51 is a parallel verse to these events, which says... When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that idiom, he set his face, you know, has to do with resolution. Made up his mind. 
Yeah, commitment. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm he's going. So that you know conflicts with the interpretation that he was just kind of waffling back and forth. Uh, should I go to the feast and risk my life? Uh, no, I'm not going to go down to the feast. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go. Uh, that I don't think that's behind it. It is possible that he just wasn't. He was telling them, "I'm not going to go in the flamboyant miracle worker manner that you're wanting me to go down." Yeah, I'm not going to do what you are telling me to do. Yeah, I think that's definitely what's going on here. I'm not going to go in this big public way, because uh, obviously there's a lot of people after him at this point, and so he's not wanting to go like with this and cause big crowds and all this stuff. He goes, I mean, I think verse 10 pretty much solves it. He went up not publicly, but in private. So he yeah. goes in, nobody knows he's gotten there. Nobody, that was a very no... different thing than what the brothers were yeah. challenging him to do. Oh yeah, they're wanting him to go in and then everybody be, oh, there he is, there he is, you know, and there's yeah. a big, big crowd following him, going into the feast and just a lot of... Working miracles, just fireworks yeah. everywhere and, yeah. you know, uh, pulling rabbits out of his hat, you yeah. know, that kind of... Yeah, that, that kind of miracle working, David Blaine stuff. Yeah, but he goes in, obviously, with really the opposite of what his brothers were kind of challenging him to do. He goes in privately. Nobody knows he's there. They're looking for him. They can't find him in verse 11. Um, but then apparently he appears in verse 14 when they're in the middle of the feast. So maybe they didn't even know he was there until like the third day of the feast. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't. Uh, some manuscripts actually. I've got a footnote in my Bible, um, the ESV, in verse eight, where he says, "I'm not going up to the feast." Uh, the footnote says, "Some manuscripts add the word yet." So be I'm not yet going up to the feast, which yeah. would definitely correspond with what we're talking about here. I'm not going to go up yet. And I think the King James says that, and the NIV. Yeah. So, but I think they're probably. That variant is got has got to be an addition to explain the to reconcile verses eight and ten. Yeah, uh, you know it does sound interpretive more than what John actually wrote. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's the sense of it. Now, another interesting thing that I just thought of as we were talking was the brothers are kind of like the devil here. Um, they don't believe in him, although I believe the devil believed in him and. So maybe yeah. there's a difference there. But you remember the temptations in the wilderness. Command these stones that, be, that they be made bread. Yeah, it challenges him. Um, jump off the pinnacle and prove that the angels will keep you from dashing your foot against a stone. Prove who you are with power and sensationalism. Mm-hmm. They're doing the exact same thing that was done to Jesus in his temptations in the wilderness. It's kind of an interesting parallel and does not bode well for the brothers. Yeah. But I think we can, you know, dispense with the idea that Jesus was lying or waffling. This was all a part of his plan. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let me yeah. ask you this. Okay. Uh, as we kind of move forward, if I let's oh, get something you're wanting to get okay. to. Okay, all right. Um, when we get to verse 37 on the last day, yeah. if I'm skipping anything big you want to cover in between these verses, let me know. You are. Okay, well, go ahead. And well, I just had one more thing to point okay. out. This, I think this is a good, and you brought it up when you said, not yet, my time has not yet come. Mm-hmm. You know, 
in John, he says all the time, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And then when the hour comes, he says, my hour has come. My hour is now here. Mm -hmm. There is a departure from that um, phrase, that expression that's even used in here somewhere. I saw it when we were reading it. Verse 30. So compare verse 30, and the ESV brings this out. His hour had not yet come. And then in verse 8, he says, My time has not yet fully come. Mm -hmm. So the ESV shows the difference between hour and... uh, Yeah, that's that. that, I should have... Yeah, here we are. Hello. Phone ringer. The hour and the time. It's two different Greek words. Uh, Time, well, hour is the more normal one. And it comes from, am I saying this right? Hora? Hora? Yeah. Hora, hora. Okay, so that has to do with the, you know, the the moment. The moment. And then, Mm -hmm. oh, please. Yeah, I can't get this done back up. And then um, (laughs) time is translated from kairos. We're blocking the other side. Time comes from kairos which has to do with the opportune time or the appointed time or the uh, the best time to do something, the psychological moment. Mm-hmm. And he said kairos. He didn't say hora, like, you know, just general hour. Yeah. But he's saying, you know, this particular moment that I should be going has not yet arrived. Mm-hmm. And that's the explanation on that. Yeah. Sorry, sorry for the phone call, folks. We, uh, I forgot to silence my phone, so we had all this <laughs> stuff going on there for a moment. Uh, so that was probably utterly confusing. So let's let's just move on down to your question about verse what verse thirty-seven. Yeah. yeah, it was a question I brought up in the first section about the connection of water and the last day of the feast. So yes. what do how how do those two connect? Yeah, he is using a visual here, because on the last day of the feast, there there was this tradition, which was a water ritual, and what what would happen was a priest would fill a golden pitcher at the pool of Siloam, and then he would pour the water out with you know all this pomp and circumstance at the foot of the altar, and I'm talking about the altar for burnt offerings. That was in front of the temple. Okay. So he'd pour this water out at the foot of the altar. And the ceremony looked back on the time when God had given their forefathers water in the wilderness. Because you remember the, this Feast of rock. Booths. And we should, have, we should have said this about the Feast of Booths a moment ago. But the Feast of Booths commemorated the wilderness wanderings. Yeah. And they would go, they would go camping, basically. No, would, that's why it's called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Yeah. Which is kind of like tents. Yeah. They would make these little temporary dwellings and live in them for seven days. And it would commemorate the time when their forefathers lived out in the wilderness. And they didn't want to forget that. It also came at harvest time. So it was kind of like a Thanksgiving tradition where they thank God for the harvest. And some people believe that the roots of our Thanksgiving Day lie in the Feast of Booths. This was October, right? Or, uh, so, or September, from, late September, September October, 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 sometime yeah. around there. So, 
but on the last day, they would do this water ritual, and it looked backwards on the provisions of water, you know, like when Moses struck the rock and water came mm-hmm. out. And it would look forward to a time when God's Spirit would be poured out, according to the prophecy of Joel 2, which, according to Peter, was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Okay. So, um, you know, that's that's what was going on, and I don't know if it was while the priest was doing that, after he did that, you know, Jesus walks up to the water that had been poured out, but it was during this time when everybody, the most people, were gathered together that he stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you think they were supposed to be like quiet while this was going on? Like yeah. This is very ceremonial. Everybody's quiet oh, yeah. watching the priest do this. So it would be similar to someone standing up during you know, a worship service or... I mean, I guess it's you know a little more... Or obviously a lot more pomp and circumstance... Um, but I guess someone's standing... I'm trying to think of something that relates to it today. I can't really think of um, anything well, a worship, as as, you know, some, you know, a worship service or... Yeah. This is like somebody standing up and yelling out something like this in a worship service. You know, for Catholics, a speech at the Vatican. The yeah. Pope is talking. Yeah. There and we this go. This man comes out of nowhere... And, you know, maybe at the conclusion of the speech or something. But, you know, he takes advantage of this ritual that's been going on for centuries to get people's attention and say, say, it's not about that. It's not about that water. It's about this water. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, it is very bold. He stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And uh, he's basically saying, I'm going to fulfill this moment you're waiting for when the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. I am going to fulfill that. I'm going to bring that into fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So you can understand why the Jews got angry with him. I'm not not agreeing with him, but I'm saying I can get it. you can see where they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, if they don't believe he is who he said he was, then... They're definitely going to want him to be punished. Uh, there's one thing I want to look at real quick. we got a little time. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of them said, This really is the prophet. And that's something we've already heard them say back in chapter 6 after he fed them uh, with the five loaves and two fish. Verse 14, the people saw the sign that he had done. And they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And we already talked a little bit in the last episode about what that prophet was. Uh, but just in case you missed the last episode, or if you just want a refresher, they're talking about the prophet like Moses, back from Deuteronomy 18, yeah. uh, where Moses made them a promise that a prophet like him would arise from among the people. And uh, so again, you still have this theme of some people think he's a prophet or the prophet, not just a prophet. And then others are saying, well, this really is the chosen one of God, the anointed one of God. Yeah, the Christ. Mm-hmm. Others say this is the Christ. Does that suggest that they were looking at those persons as two different persons? Um, I they think thought so. the prophet and the Christ would be two different people. I think so. I would imagine there was a variety of opinions yeah. about about the prophecies regarding the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy eighteen, mm-hmm. and the Christ, which is you know the son of David. Mm-hmm. There's a whole host of passages that refer to that. It's interesting to me that both of these statements about being the prophet. 
come after kind of allusions to Moses. Chapter 6, he mm-hmm. feeds them, and they're talking about the bread of heaven, mm-hmm. you know, and they're talking about... Yeah, our, manna. Yeah, our fathers were fed in the wilderness. And he says, I am the bread of life. Um, and they kind of draw that connection. And then here, we have, you know, this call back to Moses, you know, maybe striking the rock, or at least them, them being, um, again supplied with sustenance while they're in the wilderness. And again, the people bring up this idea of him being the prophet. And these two things are definitely, uh, in you know, in a way, a callback mm-hmm. to Moses leading the people and providing for the people. Right. Yeah, That I hadn't noticed that. That, that is interesting. What about this, um, you know, response to Nicodemus? You know, mm-hmm. very, first of all, very condescending. Are you from Galilee too? There was this prejudice towards people from Galilee. Yeah. That they were just hicks from the country. And uh, it's kind of the opposite of the prejudices in the United States where regionally, I don't know, those of us that live in the South kind of feel like we're looked down on by Northerners sometimes. And, you know, not as educated... Uh, you know, living in the country. Talk weird. Talk funny, talk <laughs> slow. Um, you know, but, you know, Wrong are time. you... Are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you from Galilee? Search. So, you know, do your homework is what they're searching see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, eh, some of them did. Jonah's <laughs> pretty big prophet. There's yeah. a minor prophet book entitled Jonah. He was from Gath Heifer, which uh, according to 2 Kings 14.25, that's Galilean city. Hmm. Uh, most people believe that Nahum, another prophet after whom a book was named, was from Capernaum. That's big Galilean city on the northeast or northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. Some even think that um, Elijah was from Galilee. Elijah the Tishbite. There's some differences of opinion about where Tishbe, Tishbe was. So we don't know for sure what Elijah's home is, but it wasn't Judea. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that. So uh, this was an ill-informed, condescending remark they made. And it was typical of the kind of opposition Jesus was facing. It's kind of reminiscent of the people saying... Well, he's supposed to come from Beth, or the Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem, right? You know, and this guy's not from Bethlehem. Well, yeah, he was, and they just didn't know it. And then down here, see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, there were a few that yeah. came from Galilee. So and John's showing them to be fools. Yeah, that's what he's doing. So the guy's saying, "Do your homework." Should have done more homework. Yeah. back with some practical lessons. Um, After all this talk, uh, let's pull everything together and see if there's anything that we can take from this 
that will help us out in our daily lives and our walk with Christ. Uh, the first thing that I noticed a good lesson for us to learn today is you cannot make people believe. You can't force people to believe in you no matter how hard you would try. It's just not going to work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here we have the brothers of Jesus Christ, and they don't believe in him. And they they knew the stories of his birth. you got to believe that. Mm-hmm. They knew that he was someone special. They probably, as many miracles as he had been working, don't you think that they had witnessed some of them? Surely, surely they had. I would guess, had. yeah, they would have had to have maybe seen at least one by now. So... All that, and they couldn't make him believe. Yeah. So I think that's important for us to know today, that there are just some people who are going to reject the gospel no matter what what you say or do. Yeah, and there were people that did see these signs and still didn't believe. You know, we always talk about the kind of people that always need just one more sign or just one more um, whatever it is. To believe, um, and you can use, for example, you know Gideon. We usually use him as a positive example, but Gideon was really that kind of a guy too. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, he asked for the sign of the fleece. What did he asked first, make it wet or make it dry, make the ground dry, make it wet or something. One or the other, yeah. Yeah, but he asked for the one thing, and then it happens. And he says, "Well, now do the opposite of it." So I know, you know, kind of to rule out the fact that this could have been a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Do it, do it the other way around. So yeah. there's always people that are going to need that one more sign, that just one more thing, yeah, to believe. I think. I think that you know we ought to look to the parable of the sower and take comfort in that. That our yeah. job is to sow the seed, and then God takes care of the rest, and people's souls yeah. take care of the rest. Yeah, like uh, Paul said, you know, we. Or he said, I plant Apollos waters, God gives the increase. Right. So there's only so much we can do. All right. Uh, the next thing I want to look at is really kind of a combination of what Jesus says in verse 24 and then what the Pharisees say to Nicodemus in verse 52. So in verse 52, they say to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There's this stigma, like you mentioned earlier, people from Galilee are looked down on. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's a poor town or, or whatever it might have been. And then in verse 24, Jesus talked about something totally different here. Um, but he does say, do not judge by appearances. He's talking about himself and the work he had been doing, specifically healing the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus picked... 11 guys from Galilee to be his followers. One guy that wasn't from Galilee. But he picked 11 guys from Galilee to be the tw- or part of the 12 that were going to follow him. Now, in keeping with the same line of thought that his brothers had, you know, well, if, you want, if you're a miracle worker and you want people to know who you are, go here to this big public forum and do your miracles. Um, if I am going to pick 12 guys to follow me, where I can have the biggest impact on the world, I'm not going to go pick 12 guys from Podunkville, USA. You mm-hmm. know, where everybody was going to think, well, 
the, these guys don't have an education. These guys are formal education anyway. These guys don't have any money. These guys don't have a respectable family. Uh, I mean, oh, why would I pick these guys to follow me? You know, yeah. and look at what they're saying about Jesus, verse fifteen. How is it that this man has learned? How how does he have learning when he has never studied? Mm-hmm. You know, the prejudice against being from Galilee is there. Yeah. Um, they evidently had a way of talking because you know the little girl recognized Peter's dialect uh, yeah. around the trials of Christ. You're you're with him. I can tell by the way you're talking. Mm-hmm. And then you know in Acts four, they no the crowd notices that Peter and John are uneducated men. Mm-hmm. They're fishermen. So you know, from our human way of thinking, like you said. We would say, I'm going to get the best and the brightest people around yes. me to kind of, kind of like a president. If a president's from the South, a guy running for president's from the South, he's going to get a running mate who's from a different region. Yeah. You know, to, to balance him out. And yeah. So the vice president's going to be some guy from one of the blue states or, you know. Yeah. From like Yale or Harvard. Yeah. Or something right. like that. Yeah. Somebody, I mean, but think, this is not would, what Jesus is doing. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't he have gone to get 12 of the best warriors at the time or 12 kings, 12 political guys? Nope, he picks 11 guys from Galilee that are, I mean, you've got Luke, he's a, uh, well. Yeah, he wouldn't yeah, be yeah, 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 I'm just thinking of the Gospels. Uh, you've got Matthew's a tax collector. You know, he's not a fisherman. But Simon these are, Zealot. Yeah, these are people that aren't... Unlikely heroes. Yeah. Just really, you know, from a human vantage point, strange choices. Yeah. Not political choices. But, and I think this does apply to the words of Jesus where it says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And he certainly did when he judged these guys to be his his apostles. He knew what Judas was going to do. Mm-hmm. The whole time. You know, we saw yes. that in the last chapter where he said, Did I not choose you the twelve and one of you is the devil? Uh, so he knew what was going to happen. But I, I think it's very interesting to note that God used, Jesus used, 11 poor guys from Galilee. Well, maybe save the tax collector, but he used, if he could use all these four poor fishermen from Galilee, then he can use all of us as well. You know, that's kind of a different application to make, but. Yeah, that's not where he started. No, but that's where I wanted to wind up. Uh, but Because the one guy that wasn't 24. from Galilee was Judas Iscariot. Right? Yeah, and he was from the place they wanted, these guys would have wanted him to be from, the Pharisees. Yeah. You know, somewhere down in Judea, somewhere a little bit closer to Jerusalem, somewhere, somewhere that would have been a part of the kingdom of Israel, when the or the kingdom of Judah, when the two split. So... This definitely would have been what the Pharisees were looking for, and he was the guy that ended up betraying him. So judging on appearances, he would have been the only one that was good, but with right judgment, he was really the only one that was bad. Yeah. And that makes the point for itself. Yeah, well put there at the end. I got there. (laughs) Took me a little while. Uh, here's, Here's the last lesson, and we'll close it with this. Appreciate people while you have them. In verse 34, Jesus 
says, You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. He's talking about, you know, when he departs. I should have read that with verse 33, where it says, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. Um, and then after I'm gone, you're going to look for me, and you won't be able to find me. Yeah. And that's just kind of a sobering thought to me. Appreciate people while you have them. Mm-hmm. We've all had people that died unexpectedly, that left this world, what we usually say is far too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have, we didn't, and we would look back on that and say, you know, I wish I had said this to him. I wish I had done this for him. I wish I had spent more time with her. I wish that I had, you know, told her how I really felt about her. Mm-hmm. And now she's gone, and I can't. Yeah. But today, those people who are still with you, you can. So if if there's somebody out there that you know you should apologize to or reconcile with or say, I love you, or, you know, tell them how you really feel or confront with mm-hmm. a problem that you have so that you can get past it and forgive and do it while you have them with you because life is uncertain and short and we know that all of us have an hour of our own that is coming mm-hmm. unlike Jesus we don't know exactly when that will be and so I think that's you know a very important point that we forget we don't want to think about death we don't want to think of you know the fact that we'll lose the people that we love but it happens yeah uh, I have a friend who had a near-death experience, and after he recovered, he started, and it's kind of awkward for guys to do this, but every time, he still does it, and this has been years ago, every time we leave, he says, I love you, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and I noticed that he was doing this, so I finally asked him, you know, why is it that you're always, you know, saying this, and he said, well... You know, when I almost died, I realized that, you know, I could be leaving. And and I thought about the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. with some of, some of my closest friends, the last thing that I said to them was something like, smell you later, or, you know, something, yeah. you know, just joking, always joking, never telling people how I really felt about them. And I wanted to change that. And mm-hmm. I decided that I would change it, no matter how awkward it was or different it was, I was going to start telling people how I felt about them, you know, while I had them with me. So mm-hmm. that's the lesson that we can hear. Works out great for the people that you like. Probably yeah. not so much for the people that you don't like. <laughs> well, you know, those people that you don't like, if there's some big thing that happened between you yeah, you can that ruined a relationship... You need to work that out. You know, that's part of it. I'm just thinking of like... Andrew. When I leave people, I love you, bye. I leave another person, I hate you, bye. Yeah. <laughs> just want you to know how I feel. That, that's not what I'm saying. I really do. I know. What I'm saying is, I love you, man. I'm just trying to break the tension from a pretty real moment. Yeah. Just to add there. Yeah, thanks for doing it. It was real deep. I was going to end... I had to bring us out. <laughs> I was going to end with this, you know, kind of mic drop moment. Where we just, you know, had this silence that it hung heavily over 
the whole podcast, and then you had, to, every part of your being. you had to point out a flaw in my logic. <laughs> so thanks for that. Well, that about wraps it up, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna stop right here. And uh, thank you for joining us once again. You're you're so kind with your uh, remarks. Uh, go by and leave us a review if you have the time to do it on iTunes. It really helps us in our standings and helps people find us, get more listeners out there. All you have to do is ra- give us a rating, or even better, write a review, and it and it helps out. Uh, Follow check- us on Twitter. Yeah, the sixty six podcast. Is our handle. That's the best way to find out when the episodes come out. Because they always come out at a different time every week. Yeah. And uh, we're... I said I wasn't going to say this, but... We're playing around with Meerkat, yeah. which is a video live stream. Not sure if we're going to use it, but if we do, you'll know it through Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so, that's another reason to follow us on Twitter. Send us feedback through email, dkaiser at arcoc.com, akingsley at arcoc.com. The website is the66.net. Next week, John chapter 8, and uh, maybe 9 also, because they, they definitely go together, and we'll continue this study of the Gospel of John.